The year is 1954, and sweeping changes are underway that will have lasting effects on the U.S. and the world for years to come. The U.S. Supreme Court hands down the Brown v. Board of Education decision that knocks down laws establishing separate schools for black and white students, which effectively makes all segregation illegal throughout the country. The French are defeated at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which divides Vietnam along the 17th parallel, with the North going to the communist-led government of Ho Chi Minh and the South to weaker Western-backed leaders. Meanwhile, the U.S. joins with eight European and Asian countries to form the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, or CEDA, a NATO-like group set up to prevent the further spread of communism in the region. And in that year of 1954, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to John Patrick's The Tea House of the August Moon, a satire about the well-meaning but misguided efforts of American soldiers to bring democracy to residents on the Japanese island of Okinawa. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Now, some listeners may be wondering if I've gotten the name of this month's playwright wrong. But although they share similar names, John Patrick, who wrote The Tea House of the August Moon, is an entirely different person from John Patrick Shanley, who would win a Pulitzer 50 years later for the play Doubt, which is being revived this spring. The first John Patrick's full name was John Patrick Goggin. He was born on May 17, 1905, in Louisville, Kentucky. His parents abandoned him when he was young, and he spent most of his boyhood in foster homes and institutional boarding schools. But at age 19, Patrick made his way to San Francisco, where he got a job at a local NBC radio station and worked his way up to writing and performing radio skits on air for the next 12 years. Then, having dropped his surname, he began turning out scripts for a string of Hollywood B-movies, writing eight of them in 1938 alone. But Patrick wanted to be a playwright, and in 1937, his first full-length play, Hell Freezes Over, opened on Broadway. It told the story of stranded survivors of a plane crash, but it crashed, running for just 25 performances. And so Patrick continued cranking out those movie scripts. When World War II broke out, Patrick volunteered for the American Field Service and served as an ambulance driver for British troops in Egypt, India, and Burma. That experience inspired him to write a play about a group of wounded soldiers in a military hospital in Burma. He called it The Hasty Heart. It opened in Broadway's Hudson Theater in 1945, 
ran for a then-respectable 204 performances, and Patrick adapted it in 1949 into a movie starring Patricia Neal and Ronald Reagan. But Patrick's next three plays following The Hasty Heart didn't do well, none running more than a month. He went back to writing screenplays, where he had more success with movies such as Three Coins in the Fountain, and Love is a Many-Splendored Thing. But his fortunes truly changed when he got a call from the British actor Maurice Evans, who had optioned a novel that a writer named Vernon J. Snyder had based on his World War II experience as a U.S. military administrator based on the island of Okinawa. The novel was called The Tea House of the August Moon and Evans thought Patrick was the right man to adapt it for the stage. The novel was a straightforward narrative that poked gentle fun at the ways in which the Americans attempted to teach the locals about democracy and capitalism. The military officials in the story want to build a school in the local village, but the villagers want to build a tea house that would not only provide entertainment, but boost the local economy. It's a comedy, so it ends with a happy compromise. However, Patrick restructured the story for the stage. He opens with the character Sakini, a native Okinawan who serves as the interpreter between the Americans and the locals, breaking the fourth wall and addressing audience members directly as lovely ladies and kind gentlemen. Sakini then serves throughout the rest of the play as a kind of narrator cousin to the stage manager in our town. Snyder reportedly wasn't crazy about the changes, but Robert Lewis, one of the original members of the group theater and a co-founder of the Actors Studio, was intrigued enough to take on the job of directing the show. Lewis cast John Forsyth, to play Captain Fisby, who's the stand-in for Snyder. Paul Ford to play the blustery commanding officer Colonel Wainwright Purdy. And David Wayne, an actor's studio member who had recently won a Tony for playing the leprechaun Og in Finian's Rainbow, to play Sakini. Tea House opened at the Martin Beck Theater on October 15, 1953, where it ran for 1,027 performances, making it one of the longest-running plays in Broadway history. It also won both the Drama Critics Circle and Tony Awards for Best Play of the Season. And, of course, there was the Pulitzer. That year's two-man Pulitzer jury wrote that they actually believed Herman Wolk's adaptation of his novel The Kane Mutiny Court Martial was the best play of the season, but that since Wolk had already won a Pulitzer Prize for the novel just two years earlier, they decided to go with their runner-up choice, The Tea House of the August Moon. They said they also liked the drama Tea and Sympathy, although not as much as they liked Tea House. But they totally overlooked Horton Foote's The Trip to Bountiful, which in the years since has become a beloved part of both the theatrical and film canons. 
The press at the time couldn't get enough of Tea House either. One photographic essay even showed in detail how David Wayne, who won another Tony for his portrayal of Sakini, put on the makeup that would make him look more Asian, a practice we now condemn as yellow face. The show had cast Asian actors for ensemble roles, but Sakini was always played by a white actor. So when Wayne took a leave to do a movie, the producers brought in Burgess Meredith to play the role. Eli Wallach played the part in the London production, and when the movie was made in 1956, the part went to Marlon Brando. The movie and Brando's performance in it are hard to watch nowadays, but The Tea House of the August Moon was MGM's biggest hit that year, despite the fact that 1956 was also the year the studio released James Dean's last film, Giant, and the lavish film version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's The King and I. But the social and political environments had changed by 1970, when the Tea House of the August Moon was adapted into a musical called Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, with a book by John Patrick and music by Stan Freeman and Franklin Underwood. When the white actor Kenneth Nelson was cast as Sakini, Asian actors picketed. The critics weren't crazy about the show either. I come to bury lovely ladies, kind gentlemen, not to praise it, wrote the New York Times' Clive Barnes. He said he found the book to be patronizing to Asians and that the music and lyrics sounded like chop suey of almost compelling unoriginality. The show ran for just 19 performances, although it did pick up a couple of Tony nominations, including one for the actor David Burns, who played Colonel Purdy. There have been a couple of attempts to revive the show since then. A production by the Pan-Asian Rep in 2000 tried to get rid of the yellowface problem by casting its co-founder Ernest Aduba as Sakini. But the characters still spoke pidgin English, and the critics still labeled the production a disappointment. John Patrick never had another hit like Tea House. He continued to write some two dozen more plays that were mainly produced at dinner theaters around the country and by local theater groups here and in the Virgin Islands where he lived for a while. Even the later screenplays he wrote were only done as TV movies. Patrick moved into a nursing home in Florida in 1993. Two years later, on November 7, 1995, the playwright, then 90, was found dead in his bedroom with a plastic bag over his head. He left behind a poem explaining the decision to end his life. Here's what he wrote. I won't dispute my right to die. I'll only give the reasons why. You reach a certain point in time when life has lost reason and rhyme. 
Joining me to talk about Patrick and his Pulitzer-winning play is Jordan Schilkraut, a professor of theater and performance at the State University of New York's Purchase College, who wrote a terrifically informative chapter about the Tea House of the August Moon in his book, In the Long Run, A Cultural History of Broadway's Hit Plays. Hello, Jordan Schillkraut. Welcome to Alderdrama. Thanks so much, Jan. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. I'm going to start off by asking, how familiar were you with the Tea House of the August Moon before you started working on your book? I was not at all familiar with it. I was not aware of the title. I had not seen the film version. And it was only when I started my research that I began to read more about it and become fascinated by this play and by its very strange history. What fascinated you? Oh, gosh. In my exploration of plays that uh, were long-running hits on Broadway, there are few I can think of that were quite so critically esteemed that were so well-regarded, that have subsequently fallen into such disfavor. So to give you some sense of this, T.S. of the August Moon is the only straight play, the only non-musical, to win the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the Tony Award for Best Play and run over 1,000 performances. It's the only show that's ever done that. And to have something that esteemed and that popular be pretty much by most accounts, unproducible, uh, is quite a fall. So what do you think made the Pulitzer Board award the prize back then? What were people loving about it in 1954? So a lot of the reviews uh, focus on a few different things. One is the sheer theatricality of the piece. Uh, the piece was directed by uh, Bobby Lewis, who was you know, a member of the group theater and one of the founders of the Actors Studio. And he created the show with the playwright who adapted it from the novel, John Patrick. In, it's a kind of story theater. So you have your narrator, Sakini, who's like directly addressing the audience as lovely ladies, kind gentlemen. Uh, and it's almost got a sort of Brechtian theatricality, a sort of storytelling with a message that appealed to their sense of theatrical fun, but also their kind of their sense of purpose. They understood that this was a play that did have uh, something serious on its mind while being essentially a comedy. So the combination of the heightened theatricality and the topicality of it made it really esteemed by the critics. Uh, The other thing that was pretty universally focused on was the actor David Wayne, who played the role of Sakini, who's kind of like our narrator and guide into the play. He won the Tony Award for, you know, Distinguished Dramatic Actor uh, in that year. But this is a role that David Wayne, who is a white American actor, performed in Yellowface. And this was common in the era, and it was certainly the practice in this show. But while the critics at the time praised that performance, it's one that I think rightly now is something that the American theater would not do and should not do. And so to give you some sense of this, I mean, like, you know, when Marlon Brando plays the same role in the film version, mm-hmm. uh, he's also praised for it. But now it's mostly the subject of, of ridicule uh, and honestly of shame that such a great actor would do this kind of racial impersonation. You've opened up so many lines that Mm. I want to pursue. Um, Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) 
The first is you say it was dealing with serious stuff. And what were some of those arguments that it was making at the time? So, I mean, uh, the truth is I see a lot of uh, ambiguity in this play's message, which is part of why I think it could appeal to such diverse audiences. But the play is essentially about the American military in Okinawa after World War II. And so it's really about occupation. And the whole context for this, of course, is the Cold War and the sort of Western powers and the fear of communism and seeing Okinawa as a strategically important place uh, to occupy after the war. And part of their mission here within the context of the play is to bring democracy to the natives. And so it's a fantasy of imperialism. Mm. And while the play is on some levels very critical of imperialism, it shows the failure of the Americans to achieve their objectives. It ultimately paints a happy fantasy of it, uh, and one in which the Akinawans actually benefit from the American presence. So it kind of has its anti-imperialist cake, it eats it too. <laughs> and this sort of wrestling with the position of America, particularly in relation to foreign policy in this era, I mean, that is you know, a serious issue, even though it sort of tries to present it in this comic theatrical manner. To give you some sense of how this then played out, uh, the play became very popular internationally. Yeah. And often the U.S. State Department actually funded productions of this play to be produced in places like Germany and Austria, which were occupied. So the sense that this play, even though it's somewhat satirically critical of U.S. policy, also kind of functioned as a bit of an advertisement for U.S. policy and showing the good nature of America and that we could actually laugh at ourselves at our institutions, but they're actually still good at heart and will achieve good things. It also seems to come in the midst of a fascination in popular culture with Asia. I mean, you've got South Pacific, mm. Mr. Roberts, Sayonara, in which um, Brando also stars, the world of Susie mm -hmm. Wong. What was going on with all of that? You're quite right. There are all these other examples. And so part of, uh, you know, when I look at the play, I'm trying to look at Tea House in relationship to some of the other, I don't know, tropes, I guess, mm -hmm. within those narratives. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, another one that comes to mind uh, is a play called A Majority of One, which is about an American Jewish widow who falls in love with a Japanese businessman who's also a widower. Both of them have lost sons in World War II, and it's about the romance between them, although their families disapprove or don't understand. And indeed, in most of the examples that you mentioned, there is some sense of romance, usually between a white American man and an Asian woman, although sometimes like that is you know, uh, altered as it is in uh, a majority of one. And so, you know, is it a fantasy of reconciliation? Is it a fantasy after, you know, the way that, for example, Asians were often so dehumanized, particularly the Japanese, right, during World War II as part of propaganda? Mm -hmm. Was this almost attempting a correction to be like, no, we actually can find our commonalities and we can create, you know, love together and imagine a better world together? Although, once again, this was often done through really Orientalist tropes. So, for example, even in a majority of one, the Japanese businessman is played by a white actor in yellow face. Hmm. So, again, there's this kind of mixed ambiguity about how Asians and Asian Americans are 
being represented in presumably liberal or progressive narratives, but still falling into the traps of what I think we would rightly now see as more antiquated modes of theatricality that are kind of reductive and in many cases dehumanizing. You talked about David Wayne and his portrayal of Sakini. The play did cast Asians in the ensemble. Why did they stop at the main character? So this did seem to be part of the standard practice in the show and in different other like touring productions of the show and perhaps, you know, in Broadway more generally. But if there was a character that basically needed to have more of a distinctive persona, like an actual full character, often with speaking lines, uh, they relied on white actors for that. They found them more reliable. Obviously, David Wynn was something of a star. Mm. And so there was that factor as well. And so Asian or Asian American performers would be cast, you know, as villagers or in the ensemble. And then, you know, sometimes they could like understudy or serve as a swing for one of the major roles. Uh, The only exception to this, of course, is the main female character in the play, who is Lotus Blossom. And she is almost always played by an actor of uh, actually not even Japanese American, but actually Japanese, uh, that often they would find performers from Japan to come to the U.S. to play this role. And that was the case both on Broadway uh, with Mariko Nitschke, who played the role for the entire run of the show, uh, and then also in the film version. So in that case, there was a certain, I don't know, I guess desire for quote-unquote authenticity that producers felt they were aiming for. But otherwise, they considered it more important to have what they thought of as a solid actor who could play these roles. And at this time, I think there was still not a lot of faith in Asian actors to play these roles, because frankly, they hadn't been given much opportunity to do so. So it was kind of that catch-22. I've seen some attempts by companies, including the Pan-Asian rep, to Mm. revive the play and cast Asian actors in the, the lead role, the role of Sakini, but they haven't really fared well. Is this a play that can be done today? I mean, it's it's a question that I think you will find probably different opinions about, but I would say the overwhelming uh, sense of this play is that no, that even you know trying to empower and center Asian and Asian-American performers is not enough to overcome really the pretty deep-seated Orientalist tropes within the play itself. One turning point historically where I sort of see this occurring is there's a musical version Mm -hmm. of T.S. of the August Moon that's on Broadway in 1970. It's called Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen. And by that time, both politics had shifted, but also theatrical practice had shifted. There's really a whole movement, right, that you know really comes out of the civil rights movement around self-representation and self-determination. And so when this musical is on Broadway with, once again, a white actor playing Sakini, it was boycotted. Mm-hmm. And it was protest. And one of their main complaints was that there wasn't one actor of Asian heritage that was even given the, um, you know, the dignity being allowed to audition for the role of Sakini. So the kind of sense of self-representation and of cultural pride, this is something that was not dominant in 1953, 1954, but was by 1970. The other factor here is that America was well into the Vietnam War by that point. Hmm. 
And I think so much of America, and particularly the critical establishment, um, were rightly horrified by the violence in the Vietnam War, uh, which was brought into people's like living rooms through television in a way that previous wars hadn't necessarily. And so most of the critics in 1970 actually talked about the Vietnam War and how this changed our ability to see this kind of like light, frivolous comedy about American intervention. So to me, that's the turning point. <laughs> and as far as I'm concerned, like historically, that's kind of where we still are, that to see this play about American intervention in Japan, having gone through the whole American practice of yellow face, having gone through the war in Vietnam and so forth, I do think that makes this play particularly difficult to revive. Um, although I do admire, you know, the attempt to do so to, as a historian, just to like see it mm. on stage and to try to reevaluate it. But um, aside from that kind of historical curiosity, I, I'm not sure this play really can find an audience. Have you watched Brando's performance? What What do you think Ooh, of that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, uh, I, I have to say, it's, it's, I do find it rather embarrassing. Uh, as my students would say, it's a bit cringe. Um, <laughs> it's uh, It's... You know, obviously, I respect Brando as a great mm -hmm. actor, but he is obviously terribly miscast in this. It's also heavily a comic role, which is not necessarily Brando's strong suit. Yeah, it's 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 a bit embarrassing to watch now. I've read in your book that mm -hmm. Vern Schneider, who wrote the original novel, wasn't crazy about John Patrick's uh, adaptation. Can you say a little bit more about why? So I wish that I knew. I've done, you know, tried to dig through the research to find something more specific about this. Uh, the most that I know is that, first of all, apparently Snyder, like, refused to ever meet with the playwright. Hmm. They never actually, like, were in the same room together. So I think there was probably a lack of communication between them from the get-go and a kind of distrust. But the only other thing I could point to is that, you know, at the time when the novel came out, and even then when, you know, the play came out too, Snyder did give some interviews in which he really did try to emphasize what he considered the main point, which was what he called kind of like the understory about American imperialism. And because he himself had, you know, been part of the U.S. military, he actually mm -hmm. was part of the invasion of Okinawa in 1945 and stayed on to help administer one of the refugee camps. And so he really was writing from his own experience. And the way that he put it uh, was, you know, through this very liberal sort of lens that anyone who tries to impose their values, whether they be cultural or political, on another culture are doomed to failure. And that actually we'd be much better off you know, in some ways, approaching the world with a bit more humility and trying to understand and listen to other cultures and to find common ground with them rather than trying to, you know, for example, impose democracy through the force of a gun. Um, so while, again, he did write a comedy, the novel is still a comic satire. He did see it as having this kind of serious message about American politics uh, globally. And he might have felt that the comedy, the stage play, while that message, I think, is still there, the kind of comedy of the stage play really is much more present. My final question is about why Patrick sort of faded mm. away. That's a really good question. I'll admit I'm not sure 
really what happened to him afterwards. Uh, I don't know the rest of his biography. I do know a few small details, like uh, he was a bit of a gentleman farmer. So, for example, like there's a goat who appears in the play, uh, and apparently his farm like supplied the goats for the theater. <laughs> um, so. Uh, and he was very proud of this, actually, giving, you know, acting opportunities to these creatures <laughs> um, who often got very good reviews, by the way. But um, but no, I'll admit, I, I don't know the rest of Patrick's life story. Perhaps he was satisfied to live off the royalties of this play, which had so many productions all over the world. But yeah, I'll admit, I do not know the rest of his life in the theater and where that journey led him. Well, at least he has this one. <laughs> He's yeah. always a Pulitzer winner. So thank you for joining us. You were really very helpful in setting it in context because it's, it's not a play that a lot of us know. And you were very, very informative. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I want to say it's one of the great things I think about your whole podcast series is that it really does uh, bring many of these plays, some still well-known, but others not so much, I think, back into our awareness. And that's just a beautiful thing. Thanks. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at Jan at broadwayradio.com.